0: Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In late 1777, George Washington's disappointing performance as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army was a source of growing concern among some Army officers and members of Congress. Sure, he had won important victories at Princeton and Trenton months earlier, but he had also lost New York City, Philadelphia, and had suffered defeats at Brandywine and Germantown. Patriots intended to win the war, not lose it. And to win it, some came to believe, meant removing Washington from power, or at least weakening his authority. On today's episode, Dr. Mark Edward Linder joins me to discuss what some have called a cabal or a conspiracy to replace Washington as head of American forces. The reality is much more complicated and surprising. Linder is the author of the new book, Cabal, The Plot Against George Washington, Now, today, you're actually going to get a two-for-one special. Linder is a military historian who has written extensively about the Revolutionary Era, and we actually began our chat talking about one of his first books, A Respectable Army, The Military Origins of the Republic, 1763 to 1789. He co-wrote it with James Kirby Martin, and it was published at a time when historians had begun to rethink how to write military history from the bottom up. It's a book that I've taught, and so I jumped at the chance to talk with Linder about it and how the way we tell stories has changed over time. So after a brief look at a respectable army and the ways we write military history, we dive into the minds of the men who sought to remove Washington from power. Now, before we begin, just a hello and thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to like and subscribe to Conversations wherever you get your podcasts. And now, let's plot against General Washington with Mark Edward Linder.
1: The, the contribution of the militia is much enhanced in a respectable mm-hmm. army mm-hmm. now and west point has uh, this required reading up there now and uh,
0: oh yeah sort of, well uh, yeah. i guess so, it doesn't surprise me yeah well it uh, sure delighted me you know, well yeah <laughs> how well how did you how did you all become interested in the military origins of the republic to take the subtitle well And what wasn't being done to your satisfaction Uh, that you thought needed to be fleshed out? What
1: got me into it was
0: um,
1: I was in graduate school at the time when uh, uh, the the phrase was history from the bottom up Mm -hmm. was the rage. You're not supposed to look up there. You're supposed to see what was going on down there. Yeah. And what became obvious very early in the game was that uh, nobody had really looked at the origins of the enlisted men of the Continental Army. Mm -hmm. You had um, one, two, three articles out. And I figured if you can get three articles, let me look and see if the sources are available to to look at a whole state. And my dissertation turned out to be the enlisted men of of the uh, New Jersey Brigade, Mm. Mm -hmm. which uh, luckily, New Jersey was very good at tax assessments during the war, not so (laughs) great at tax collections. But (laughs) (laughs) they did assess it. So I was able to track... Uh, taking muster rolls and and link them uh, a fair number of the men uh, with uh, The tax assessment lists, okay, and almost invariably they were from the bottom Mm -hmm. of of the taxable wealth uh, strata in the in the revolutionary state and then uh, Based upon that it was fairly easy also to get a a fix on on men who were not on the tax lists and there was generally a reason for that they Mm -hmm. were very young they were ruthless in society. They were generally uh, new immigrants. They were guys who came in from out of state uh, looking for, for something. I'm not saying they were mercenaries. They, they could have joined the British Army and yeah. had a, a lot more security, uh, as it were, uh, regular pay, decent supply. Mm-hmm. But uh, having made a choice, the the army offered more than civilian life, at least in terms of uh, being able to stay fed and more or less sheltered, uh, mm-hmm. if not adequately paid or, or even adequately fed at times. Um, and this even included some who brought their families with them. I mean, that was uh, you know, fairly routine for uh, 18th century armies anyway, but... The New Jersey Brigade, like the rest of the army, was a small society on the move. Mm. And you had kids who were born uh, in camp. Uh, And one thing led to another. and I was going to publish the dissertation with New York University Press, and uh, Jim Martin, who was my advisor, Mm -hmm. was his first graduate student.
0: Oh, is that so? That's a fact, yeah,
1: that's a fact. And we've stayed at it ever since. <laughs> I said, look, uh, there's an opportunity to uh, to go with uh, Harlan Davidson, and they would take it now, but we he wanted a co-author. And mm-hmm. uh, he had um, done some work on, uh, con- on, not continental, but the political leadership. So he said, look, let's take the military and mesh it mm-hmm. with uh, the political social stuff that's coming in today. And, and there it is. So... We've been happy with it. We did a revision in 2006, I guess. It was Volume 2. It must have been the one you yeah. used. And then uh, the new cover, which is a lot fancier, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the new cover is uh, uh, on Volume, on, on Edition 3, which is with Wiley. So uh, we learned uh, just late, late last year that West Point had adopted it; uh, it's, it's required reading for their history of the U.S. Army, which all the cadets have got to take. Yeah, so we're happy about that. No, it's great. Uh, yeah, we're, uh, uh, and it was you know, it's uh, I think the evolution of that book is sort of a demonstration of scholarship leads to scholarship. Mm-hmm, if, you, mm-hmm. I mean, if the book had not done well, I, I guess there would have been no further editions, and it would, would have dropped out of sight, and probably deservedly so. But we've been able to keep it updated, and. Uh, I think, say some things that needed saying, particularly about compound warfare. Yeah. And it, it goes into, it sort of gets out of this argument who won the war, the regulars or the militia, mm-hmm. and say that it's a moot point because neither neither could have won it alone. You needed yeah. both. And this explains why and how.
0: Royster's writing Revolutionary People at War, uh, you know, Robert Gross, Minutemen in his World, yep. you know, um, you know, really, as you say, from the bottom up, really rethinking the way that we should look at armies and their the intersection of society and the reflection, yeah. and the, the extent to which they reflected society,
1: and I, I think uh, particularly the con- the experience of the revolutionary military mm-hmm. um, does uh, speak directly to that. And as, as you note, as you have noted, there was an awful lot of interest in that sort of thing back in the the mid to late nineteen seventies into the nineteen eighties. Yeah, and I think it's been. Uh, it's been solid scholarship i yep. mean it has not been outdated necessarily it's been added to but mm-hmm. but never contradicted mm-hmm. i think the old um, the old myth of the embattled farmer died hard right because there was a kernel to it a kernel of truth to it mm-hmm. and even in the continental army you had individuals who who enlisted because they thought it was the thing to do mm-hmm. Uh, And more power to them, Uh, you know. But you had plenty of 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 young British soldiers who thought this thought the same thing. It was kind of tough for Americans to understand that there may have been British troops who took the cause of king and country as as seriously as as uh, American rebels took uh, the cause of Mm -hmm. the revolution. I mean, the British at that point among the European countries were probably the most nationalistic. Uh, perhaps the the term nationalism doesn't fit with today's definition of it, but it was it was nascent. It was there. Yeah. And they were proud to be British, uh, particularly in that officer corps. Uh, they, oh yes, uh, <laughs> they
0: were. Uh, Even when they, they didn't think that, um, you know, fighting the revolution, or, you know, fighting against the Americans was the best thing to do. They, you know, they still put on the uniform and did their duty. Yeah, in large part because they they that felt was, that connection to king and country.
1: Uh, there's a lot to that. Yeah. A lot to
0: that. Well, speaking of rewriting history or rethinking history, your recent book on the plot against George Washington in the early years of the war, Cabal. Um, sometimes it's called the Conway Cabal. Um, you deliberately don't have that on the, on the title for, I think, uh, reasons that will be made clear to people who read the book. But um, can you give us a broad sense of... Um, what this plot is or what people commonly understand as the plot against George Washington the the
1: popular narrative and uh, I do not say that in any disparaging way right. uh, a lot of academics have followed it as well but uh, called the Conway cabal uh, because one of the uh, one of the individuals most closely associated with going on was was Thomas Conway uh, uh, a very capable, Brigadier General, by mm-hmm. the way, uh, Irish-born, raised in France, uh, is fluent in English and French, mm-hmm. which made him particularly valuable when he came to uh, serve in the Continental Army. A lot of French officers did not speak English all that well. Uh, he was able to, to mix uh, very, very easily, not only with Continental officers, mm-hmm. but with uh, Uh, rebel politicians as well and very, very ranking politicians. The Adamses thought very highly of him, for example, Uh, Richard Henry Lee thought very highly of him, Uh, Thomas Mifflin thought very highly of him, Benjamin Rush thought very highly of him. These were, uh, if not signers, some of them were, but very, very prominent in in, uh, the upper reaches of of patriot leadership. Mm He became, the, the he being Thomas Conway, uh, became involved uh, because, among other things, uh, in addition to being a competent officer, uh, he had a nature for intrigue. There's no question about that. <laughs> uh, he, he made no bones. I mean, in a letter to, um, uh, I believe it was Anthony Wayne, he said flat out that uh, I'm over here to to build a resume, to mm-hmm. go back to France and, and get promotion to a brigadier over there. But uh, a lot of folks had done that, and having a healthy ambition is certainly no demerit if you're if you're trying to climb the ranks of a mm-hmm. of a European military. Sounds was, like a young George Washington. Well, a young George Washington wanted that red coat pretty badly, <laughs> so. Uh, but he got caught up. The, uh, Conway got caught up in the period of of late 1777 to early 1776 when Washington had come under fairly intense political and military fire, simply because Mm -hmm. his military record to that stage of the war uh, was, frankly, uh, dangerously second rate. I mean, uh, one one can attribute uh, his disappointments in the autumn of 1777 to a lot of reasons, but Mm -hmm. he was the man in charge, so he was the man who was gonna get a good deal of the blame. Mm And we have to keep in mind when we think of this that when politicians hire a general, they don't hire him to lose. Right. They hire him to right. uh, to produce results. And Washington, uh, for any number of reasons, was not producing mm-hmm. the results. He was out at uh, Brandywine. Uh, he had a large detachment under Anthony Wayne, surprised at Paoli. Mm-hmm. His counterattack at Germantown failed. What really was... Uh, a final thumb in the eye for a lot of rebels was the loss of the Delaware River Forts, Forts Mercer and Mifflin, mm-hmm. that had kept the Royal Navy at bay, uh, making it impossible or very, very difficult to supply the uh, occupation of Philadelphia via the Delaware, mm-hmm. which, which could conceivably have, have uh, ruined Howe's campaign for him at the at the end of the year. But with the fall of those forts, uh, the British had uh, easy access to keep that army supplied, mm-hmm. and the campaign for Washington, in effect, uh, had uh, had fallen apart. Yeah. So, um, if you are responsible politicians and you're trying to run. Uh, not just a war, but a revolution. Right. right? Which uh, meant that you're not only facing an external enemy, you've got internal problems of considerable extent. Mm -hmm. What do you do with a general who's not winning? I mean, one thing I tried to dismiss, and I hope it came through, (laughs) was that uh, this whole business of of Washington's critics did not involve people Mm -hmm. uh, who had some personal animus against George Washington. You you had people who were concerned that the man they had hired... Mm -hmm was not producing the results for which he was hired.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a bigger picture to, here.
1: Well, yeah, we have to look at some of these people. I mean, uh, some of his most strident critics are Samuel Adams mm-hmm. uh, of Massachusetts. While he's criticizing Washington, his son, Samuel Adams Jr., mm-hmm. is an Army doctor who uh, I've been able to place uh, uh, just behind the lines, for example, at the Battle of Monmouth, yeah. risking his neck. James Lovell of Massachusetts, again, perhaps the most astringent of Washington's critics. Uh, while he's, he's uh, beating the drum against Washington in, in, uh, in York, as Congress mm-hmm. is exiled, uh, his son is a Continental officer, uh, wounded, uh, served uh, in, in distinguished fashion. Uh, Abraham Clark of New Jersey, who was very skeptical of many of Washington's decisions, uh, had two of his sons captured. One was uh, treated abominably, put in the, the prison hulks uh, 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 oh, yeah. of Jersey, the Jersey mm-hmm. uh, off New York Harbor, was treated so badly, it was one of the rare instances when Congress finally said, either you lighten up on this kid, or we're going to take a British officer and subject him to the same treatment. Right. And, and, of course, the British did let up mm-hmm. on, on young people. Uh, uh, on the young officer mm-hmm. uh, you, we can go on like this yeah. I mean these are not men who wanted to lose the war these are not men who uh, uh, who had anything personal against mm-hmm. Washington it, it may have become personal but uh, these were patriots mm-hmm. who were concerned that the general they had hired uh, was seemingly not up to the job mm-hmm. it, it's uh There were other things as well. There was an ideological predisposition among a lot of Washington's critics to place a lot more emphasis on the value of militia warfare. I thought Washington had perhaps made an error Mm -hmm. in uh, his emphasis on building a regular continental Mm -hmm. army. And and that was in the background. I'm not minimizing that. Uh, We have to remember this was a time when ideology uh, meant something. Sure. Not that it doesn't today, but uh, I think uh, when you talk about republicanism in the age of the American Revolution, you're talking about something that uh, that many individuals, particularly those who were willing to go to war mm-hmm. to defend their position, took very seriously indeed. Yeah. So Washington did face; uh, it took some real persuading on his part to bring Congress around to allow him to build that regular army. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, an awful lot of skeptics finally understood that. We, we've got to have regulars, and not yeah. not just for military reasons. It was a strong diplomatic case for it. I mean, European nations were not necessarily going to recognize a, a revolution based on irregular military forces. Right. Uh, it was important to have mm-hmm. a regular army, a standing army, that uh, that people could understand that there was an institutional basis mm-hmm. for this revolution. And um, Not that I'm denigrating Congress here, but... Uh, when you get down to it, the most effective national institution mm-hmm. that the revolution produced was not the Continental Congress. It was the Continental Army.
0: Yeah. Well, so, if that doesn't survive, that's the ballgame. Yeah.
1: I mean, uh, the, the Declaration of Independence would have been a piece of paper if the Continental Army had dissolved. Right. Uh, that that's a, it would have been an interesting footnote in the history of the British Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. A very interesting footnote. very interesting <laughs> footnote, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs>
0: well, and, and so part of the, the process of rethinking the story... Um, you, know, you know, I do want to uh, talk about some of the, the details a little bit later. But mm-hmm. how had people written about this before? I mean, what was their sense of what this this so this uh, quote unquote plot was? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to scare listeners with
1: the dreaded word historiography. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to uh, use it, but you <laughs> did. <laughs> right. But historiography the uh, the history of the history mm-hmm. of the uh, war for independence or the, or the revolution at, at large. The early historians, early nineteenth century. Uh, Uh, even late uh, 18th century, we're convinced that there was indeed some sort of plot to remove General Washington Mm -hmm. uh, in in favor of another officer. I guess we'll talk about Horatio Gates in a bit. Sure. Uh, There was one skeptic uh, who looked very, very hard. There was Jared Sparks uh, from Harvard, Mm -hmm. uh, who as late as the 1820s was was contacting uh, survivors of the... uh, of the revolutionary generation, trying to get to the bottom of Mm -hmm. it, finally concluded he couldn't get to the bottom of it. But most historians, uh, Mercy Otis Warren, uh, Carla Botta, uh, uh, Ramsey, were all convinced that there was indeed uh, a movement afoot to get rid of Washington, even if they couldn't put their finger on, well, they had names, but Mm -hmm. uh, uh, coming up with with absolute proof is, Uh, was was tricky. Nevertheless, they believed it. And and look, why not? Uh, If you had people really out to remove Washington, do we expect them to take minutes of meetings? Yes. Uh, I'd like to call the the committee to replace Washington together. Please, uh, the secretary will take notes. No, you're not going to get that. You're not going to get that. Oh, there were slight hints. Sure. There were slight hints. Uh, Thomas Mifflin, uh, when when a lot of this was breaking into the open, Mm Did write to Horatio Gates and say, for heaven's sake, be, guard your correspondence. Be careful. <laughs> when when one particular letter went, yeah. went public, and I guess we can talk about that later. Yeah. Uh, after the war, it appears, uh, at least according to the children of Benjamin Rush, the mm-hmm. Benjamin Rush, another astringent critic of Washington yeah. and a great, a great. Um, Ideologue in favor of militia warfare. Mm-hmm. His great quote, quote to John Adams was that uh, John or Sam, one of the Adams mm-hmm. cousins, and I believe it was, uh, I believe it was John or probably Sam, uh, that the militia began the war, and he hoped that the militia finishes Finish the it. war. Uh, but uh, his children were convinced that that Rush, uh, when of course the war is over and Washington has his reputation solidly established. Mm-hmm. May have sanitized his papers, uh, oh. so uh, we do know that Rush went to some of the early went to John Marshall, for example, mm-hmm. when Marshall was writing his uh, multi-volume biography of George Washington. Of course, Marshall had, was a Continental veteran himself, mm-hmm. Continental offer and a great partisan of
0: Washington. Uh, just pleading with Marshall, yeah. don't don't mention this, no, huh? That <laughs> so, uh, what's amazing? I mean, that it it starts, you know. Right after the war ends, you know, P- you know Rufioos right war. Warren, Ramsey, you know, yeah. Marshall. Uh, and they are- to
1: an extent, uh, even James Madison. Mm. When uh, there was a discussion, uh, the Constitution has been ratified. Mm. Now we're going into the election of the first president of the United States. Everyone knows it's going to be George Washington, mm-hmm. and Madison, a young young Madison, uh, is writing to Thomas Jefferson, and this is in the Jefferson Papers, yeah, saying. Uh, you know, when, when it comes down to uh, who's going to be the vice president, well, we know it's not going to be John Adams because Adams was, I think the actual word was caballing against Washington <laughs> during the war. Now, That's marvelous. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think James Madison is, is a pretty good source. Yeah. So uh, this was pretty much gospel mm-hmm. until 1941. When uh, Bernard Nolenberg, uh, a very good historian, by the way, and uh, a lawyer, Mm -hmm. and uh, a very distinguished public servant in in many roles, and a good scholar. I mean, I said he was a distinguished historian. He was a good scholar, but he was a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he wrote a book called Washington and the Revolution. Uh, In effect, it was a brief defending the critics of Washington. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, It was a long time coming. Others had hinted at uh, Horatio Gates is not such a bad guy. Yeah. And uh, maybe we ought to take another look at Thomas Mifflin and uh, some of other Washington's other critics. But no one had to come out with a very cogent argument mm-hmm. saying that there's no definite proof. You can't prove this. And in, in, the, in the absence of any real proof, uh, you've got to look at the fact that Washington not only survived, he prospered. I mean, he ended right. up being George Washington, mm-hmm. the man on the white horse. Uh, and so he dismissed it. Following that, a lot of academic historians fell in line. Mm -hmm. You can't prove it, uh, so it probably didn't exist. And besides, when people complain about cabals, uh, look at the meaning of cabal in the 18th century context and and going through uh, uh, the various dictionaries that were current at the time. And you can find that cabal means almost any annoyance, uh, you know, a couple of people <laughs> being annoyed with a, a political po- uh, stance or a particular mm-hmm. individual, or, or uh, and uh, arguing it it was language really didn't mean that much. Mm-hmm. So what it came down to uh, was an understanding among many historians that what had happened, what Washington had faced during the late 1777 months into the early months of 1778 was a bunch of uh, really annoying carping critics uh, who never really posed a serious threat to Washington's command. Well, that was the historiography until relatively recently. Sure. So what, what got you interested in this, in this particular topic? You know, we mentioned earlier talking about a respectable army that scholarship leads to scholarship. Sure. And that's what we've got a case of here. hmm a couple of years ago, uh, actually, I sat in this uh, this booth talking about an earlier book uh, yeah. called Fatal Sunday, uh, George Washington, the Monmouth Campaign and the Politics of Battle. Mm-hmm. The argument in that was that the Monmouth Campaign really put Washington over the top in terms of uh, his being able to consolidate his hold on the Continental Army and subsequently his emergence really as the icon, the iconic figure mm-hmm. of the American Revolutionary period. It was Monmouth that allowed him, in effect, to put paid to his critics of early 1778, late 1777. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he had had another failing campaign in 1778, I think it's entirely possible that his critics would have been in full cry. Yeah. Like we, uh, you know, he survived 1777, but now this is just, mm-hmm. this is intolerable. Yeah. Uh, that's not what happened. Washington uh, had a tactical draw at Monmouth, but for reasons that are beyond our discussion today, uh, his partisans were able to spin a great victory out of it. Mm -hmm. And politically, uh, the results were impressive. I mean, Washington did silence his critics for the most part. Mm -hmm. Certainly, uh, the results of Monmouth put him beyond uh, any critics remaining being able to hurt him. Chapter 2 goes into the period we're talking about here, and I, having done that, and working with Gary Stone by the way, my co-author on that, Uh having done that, I kept seeing material coming together in the writing of Fatal Sunday that argued that this wasn't just a bunch of carping critics who were annoying, Uh that these were serious people. They had a case to make and when they had a chance to do something about it, they did. Mm-hmm. And that led to the current book, to mm-hmm. Cabal, The Plot Against General Washington. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose uh, it may have been better to have an even lengthier subtitle, The Conway Cabal <laughs> Reconsidered, but I thought that would have been gilding the lily. <laughs> so, but this is what it, uh, this is in effect what happened. Uh, is the historiography since 1941? Uh, is it time to flip that historiography? Mm-hmm. Now you began to get hints, and I think one of the biggest hints was, in fact, uh, Fatal Sunday, yeah. uh, Chapter Two, when we we raised this issue. But uh, little by little, I, I and we, we cited it, or I cited it in in uh, Cabal. You you had an article here. Uh, a blog there of mm-hmm. historians who began to take another look at this and say, "Wait a minute! Mm-hmm. I mean, you cannot write off Samuel Adams as a lightweight. Sure. You can't write Richard Henry Lee off as a lightweight, or, or Benjamin Rush, or John Adams, mm-hmm. or, or, or Thomas Mifflin, and for that matter, you can't write off Thomas Conway, right. uh, or, or Horatio Gates." Mm-hmm. Uh, Horatio Gates uh, has had a hard time with historians I mean, the big <laughs> argument over whether or not uh, he deserved all the credit that he got from Saratoga that's beside the point yeah fact was uh, he, in late 1777 early 70, he was an American hero mm-hmm. and he deserved to be and he was not a military lightweight now, if we go back over his career we find that he brought experience to the Continental Army particularly early in the war sure. that it desperately needed uh, people needed to know how to draft orders clearly. They needed mm-hmm. to know how to keep military records. Uh, he had these skills. Mm-hmm. And it's not as if he didn't have combat either. He, he survived the Monongahela.
0: Yeah. Uh, oh,
1: yeah. And uh, you can argue with his tactics at Saratoga. But... The surrender of an entire British army is not a bad result. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, I mean, he was the man pretty- of the moment, yeah. uh, particularly when you compare his performance to that of Washington in, mm-hmm. in late 1777, and it, it's pretty natural that people are going to look mm-hmm. to him. And uh, it's also natural, and people tend to forget this that uh, there were there was more than one commander in chief. Mm-hmm. During the uh, War for Independence, there was uh, Essek Hopkins, who was the commander-in-chief of the Continental Navy. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had Washington with the Army, Hopkins with the Navy, and uh, do you fire a non-performing commander-in-chief? You're darn right you do. Yeah. Uh, For reasons that... uh, uh, Well, just very quickly, um, Washington had political skills. Hopkins didn't. Mm -hmm. Washington at least had the confidence of the senior officers immediately, or not all of them, by the way, but uh, those around him were willing to rally to him. Uh, Hopkins didn't have that. Washington did have friends, even as tough as it got uh, Mm -hmm. for him. He did have friends in Congress. Hopkins essentially lost his his friends. And so they fired a commander-in-chief, and so they could do it and And they did it for the same reasons Washington mm-hmm. came under fire. uh they'd hired him to to run an effective war Hopkins didn't mm-hmm. uh, w- One can argue excuses for Hopkins, but nevertheless, he was the man in mm-hmm. command, and that's the guy it lands on if things go wrong
0: yeah so, so uh, go ahead I'll say so so Washington is you know is underperforming, yeah um to put it mildly. Gates is ascendant with his victory at saratoga um there is increasing consternation amongst many people that you know, as you say, Washington is not getting the job done, and you know, you're not in this fight to lose; you're in to win. And so, when you know, when and when do they start to think, well, perhaps we should we should make a change? And w- you know, what do they think is the mechanism for achieving that in a in a you know in a kind of democratic process? Sure. It's one of
1: these things we can actually date fairly accurately. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the criticism of Washington had been building. Uh, over the autumn of seventeen, uh, since since really uh, brandy wine, sure, and uh, after Paoli, and then uh, as I mentioned, after Germantown, after the loss of the river forts, uh, uh, the failure to keep the campaign going. Pennsylvania, for example, wanted a winter campaign, keep fighting. Washington mm-hmm. said, "Come on, uh, I can barely keep the army together. Uh, we can't." So they go into Valley Forge. So. Uh, there is an attempt in Congress, parallel to all of this, to put the war on a more the war effort on a more rational administrative basis. Mm-hmm. Maybe what Washington and the Army need is uh, is an organization to take some of the mundane chores of Army administration. Army records, mm-hmm. uh, keeping equipment that's not being used, routine military correspondence, uh, that's that's swamping Congress, mm-hmm. just swamping Congress. Uh, what do you do with British prisoners? Well, the Army really can't take care of them. Uh, so Congress had, in 1776, organized the Board of War and Ordinance, okay. better known as the Board of War, often called the War Office. Mm-hmm. Uh, In the book, we use uh, Board of War and occasionally War Office. Those were the terms used more or less interchangeably at the time. Uh, The problem with that was that the Board of War, as constituted in 1776, was made up of members of Congress. Mm. And so you take all this stuff that was this this detail, this army minutiae that's that's flooding into Congress and jamming it up so that it can barely work on anything else, and you're focusing it now on a small body of men. Mm -hmm. Uh, John Adams said he never worked harder in his life than (laughs) than when he chaired that original board of war. By 1777, this this isn't working. We need a board of war that is not composed of members of Congress, Mm -hmm. professional managers, people who know military affairs. Um, It was organized or reorganized on this basis in October of 1777. And right there, we know who the the real influence behind the reorganization was. This is Thomas Mifflin mm. of Pennsylvania. Mifflin had been an early aide to Washington in 1777, even quartermaster general. Mm-hmm. Uh, had been close to Washington early in the war, but had uh, taken umbrage as uh, the ascendancy of Nathaniel Green uh, uh, became obvious and, mm-hmm. and Washington was turning to Green. There was some personal jealousy there. There was no question about that. There's also no question that Mifflin took very seriously the, uh, the military reverses he was seeing, uh, disagreed with a lot of uh, Washington's military decisions, disagreed with uh, the advice that uh, Washington was getting from Nathaniel Green. So you had a falling out. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also the problematic performance of Mifflin as Quartermaster General. Uh, Washington was very concerned about that. So, given his influence in Congress, and that's a whole different story, uh, but Mifflin was very well connected in Congress. Mm -hmm. It was to Mifflin that Congress turned as it reorganized the Board of War. In fact, one of the first people appointed to the Board of War was Thomas Mifflin, who was, of course, Mm -hmm. a a critic of George Washington. Mm -hmm. The Board of War uh, was not supposed to be an operational group. It was supposed to be a support group. Sure, It was not organized to get in there and and run the Army on a daily basis or tell Washington what to do on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. It was to support the Army. We'll talk about mission creep in a minute. (laughs) But... uh, uh, But it was Mifflin who had more than anyone else uh, uh, the biggest say on how that board was to be reorganized and who would compose that Mm -hmm. board. Uh, This has been called, in in other uh, (laughs) projects, the Mifflin Maneuver. Uh, He he persuaded Congress, and Congress enthusiastically Mm -hmm. uh, endorsed the idea of naming Horatio Gates as president of the new Board of War. Uh, by this time, for reasons we can talk about, uh, or we're just, just put on the table, Washington and Gates had an extremely problematic relationship. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, Thomas Mifflin and Washington had a very problematic mm-hmm. relationship. So you, now you have uh, the victorious, General from Saratoga, yeah, uh, the former Quartermaster General of the Army,, mm-hmm. both with enormous political backing, coming to run the board of War, and others were brought ab- brought aboard, and uh, also with some Washington skeptics. Mm-hmm working with the new board of war were some of the old board of war members, members of Congress, until you could get a a fully staffed uh, new board up and running. And it turned out that many of those holdovers were also Washington skeptics. So there is an army definition today, a military definition today of mission creep, Mm -hmm. which uh, did not exist in the 18th century, but essentially it comes down to this it, mission creep occurs in, in, in corporate parlance today, think they call it scope creep. Oh. But, uh, but uh, if you have an organization that is created to do one thing, and then it sees an opportunity to do something else, in mm-hmm. other words, to expand its scope, or to expand its mission, mm-hmm. to do things for which it was not intended, and, and sometimes not even equipped to do, mm-hmm. uh, there are two ways you can do this. Uh, one can be benevolent, that, mm-hmm. all right, Uh, I've been constituted to do X, but, you know, Y over here, and I think I can handle it. uh, Just I'll do Y, you know, no harm intended. Or it can be not so benevolent. It can be, let's call it a power grab, Mm -hmm. that uh, I'm constituted to do X, but no one's going to stop me from doing Y, and I've got the political clout behind me. Not only that, (laughs) uh, Congress actually passed legislation telling the Board of War that if you think you can do something else, Mm -hmm. just... Let us know and we'll back you. Yeah. Uh, so you, you you had sort of an escalator clause built into the legislation mm-hmm. creating the Board of War. Um, one of the first things that the Board of War did, and this is before even uh, Gates had been brought down, yeah. uh, he didn't get there till November. So uh, until January, actually, of 1778 when he mm-hmm. arrived in York to actually take up yeah. the job. Uh Mifflin got permission to create the office of Inspector General of the Army. Now this is something that Washington and his officers had wanted. Mm -hmm. They had uh, worked with Congress to say, we need an Inspector General uh, for all the reasons that Steuben proved uh, necessary later on. Mm -hmm. We need uniform drill, we need uniform discipline. Um, We need mechanisms under which we can evaluate the performance of various components uh, of the army. Uh, We need standard regulations that people can refer to. Uh, It was to be an important staff officer reporting to George Washington Mm -hmm. as commander-in-chief. I mean, what sense does it make to have someone doing all of those things independently of the commander-in-chief? Yeah. The Army was very clear about this. This is going to be someone, on the, an important staff member of mm-hmm. the commander-in-chief. It's not what Mifflin did. He persuaded Congress to have the Board of War appoint an inspector general. Mm-hmm. Actually, plural. There were going to be two. Mm-hmm. Uh, they never appointed more than one. Um, they appointed Thomas Conway. Uh, who had already fallen out with Washington for, uh, he, it was intriguing to be promoted to major general. Uh, he was the junior brigadier in the Continental Army. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be bumped up to major general uh, for reasons he he thought were uh, quite valid. Uh, he was not exactly a modest kind of guy. He believed and openly <laughs> believed that he was smarter than any other brigadier yeah. in the army and most of the major generals. And you know. Uh, Maybe you can even make that case, by the way. As I said, he was not an incompetent officer. And he was a good disciplinarian. He was a good trainer of soldiers. Mm -hmm. He had a record of that uh, in Europe. And he did a pretty good job with his brigade in the Continental Army. So this is not a guy without qualifications for the job.
0: But he was a guy
1: who was at absolute odds with George Washington. Mm -hmm. So a lot of folks have focused on the appointment of Conway Mm -hmm. being... The, the flashpoint. Yes and no. Yeah. Washington was not pleased with the appointment at all. But Washington and his partisans, uh, the office, his staff, other officers, uh, looked beyond Thomas Conway and said, would you look at the structure of what Congress and the Board of War have done? Mm-hmm. They have created a powerful new position within the Continental Army that was sort of in the Army, but not of it. Yeah, The position reported to the Board of War, mm-hmm. not to the Commander-in-Chief. And the powers that we were given, he was going to, with, uh, with Congressional approval, uh, the Board of War would define what uniform regulations, what uniform tactical evolutions would be. Um, It was the Inspector General who would do, in in effect, uh, efficiency reports on on Continental officers, Mm -hmm. uh, without reference to the Commander in Chief. Uh, Alexander Hamilton read right through this Mm -hmm. and uh, and denounced it. He called it quote a brat of faction, (laughs) but he spelled out why it was a brat that uh, everybody is saying well. You're going to have this powerful officer not responsible to the commander-in-chief. Yeah. In effect, you're giving control of a critical aspect of the army to the board of war. Sure. In other words, to Thomas Mifflin and then Horatio Gates. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gates, when he arrived in January, had no objection to this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, Washington had a major objection and and uh, that's beyond our ken here. Yeah. I mean, he, he took care of Thomas Conway simply yeah. by not dealing with the man. But that's a whole other story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Washington was... Very put out yeah. over this, uh, and we know uh, you know Washington is famous for his belief in military subordination to civilian authority. Sure. Oh yeah. But not when it came to the Board of War. Yeah. <laughs> which which was technically a civilian yeah. body, although. Well, Gates and Mifflin, they both retained their commissions, they right? both They retained their commissions, and actually when he came to work, uh, Horatio Gates wore his uniform, and he had permission as chair, as president of the Board of War, mm-hmm. to take the field if he wanted to. So technically, he's Washington's boss. Yeah. So, uh, and it, it went on from there. There were other uh, very, very, uh, I mean, clearly power grabs, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and not... There was no malicious intent here. Uh, they, they made these moves because they believed the army desperately mm-hmm. needed that office. And they didn't think, again, they'd lost face in Washington. Yeah. Then we come to the logistic, commissary and logistics operations. Horatio Gates looked at commissary operations and the, the, the duly constituted commissary department. Uh, this is a catastrophe. Yeah. The army's starving. Uh, instead of firing, the inept director and rebuilding the commissary department, Mm -hmm. he creates a parallel commissary operation. So you have Gates's people in the field Mm -hmm. competing for the same supplies as the standard, the existing established commissary Mm -hmm. department. Plus, because now they're headquartered in Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania has said, uh, we will help supply the Continental Army, You have supply commissary officials of Pennsylvania out in the field competing for (laughs) the same. So so you wonder if there was inflation. You have three separate operations competing for the same supplies. There were price controls. Yeah, good luck with that. Right. Oh, sure. uh, uh, It it was an administrative nightmare. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... You have some very, very good historians, and there's one very good one did a very detailed study of commissary operations during the Valley Forge winter. He uh-huh. said flat out, "This was a power grab." Sure, uh, it, it was just, uh, and you know, and you can look at it saying, "Why didn't they just fire Buchanan, who was the ineffectual commissary uh, general, because he was he ported to Washington." And, oh yeah, uh, you know, and to have simply replaced him mm-hmm. would have put somebody else under Washington. Sure. Same thing with quartermaster mm-hmm. uh, when they they tried to uh, implement a quartermaster operation uh, designed by Thomas Mifflin, mm-hmm. and it would have had a, a very weak quartermaster, essentially reporting not to Washington but uh, beholden to the uh, the Board of War, without uh, more than incidental funds. By mm-hmm. the way, uh, yeah. they they had it. Farmed at it was another administrative nightmare. And the historian of quartermaster operations looked at that and said, This is just, this is called a, a, a bold faced attempt yeah. to uh, increase the power of the Board of mm-hmm. War at Washington's command authorities' mm-hmm. expense. So here you've got, and by the way, uh, the, the Army today, in its historical series, mm-hmm. has an official history of the Office of Inspector General. And oh, their conclusion really? was, flat out, that uh, the uh, Board of War's arrangement would have created a parallel commander of yeah. the Continental Army. And you can't have that. I mean, it's, it's a violation of unity of command, if nothing else. Oh, sure. is, uh, yeah. But it, it was also uh, yanking the rug mm-hmm. out from underneath Washington's authority. Uh, you had other incidents of Gates, um, as president of the Board of War, mm-hmm. making unilateral moves without telling Washington, Yeah. Uh, invalidating uh, passes Washington would issue uh, to deal with British uh, Mm -hmm. supply efforts uh, to their prisoners, for example, uh, creating artillery units uh, saying specifically they are not to fall under the command of of Henry Knox, Washington's Mm -hmm. artillery chief, uh, of moving supplies around and moving units around without telling Washington. And Washington and and Knox corresponding and saying, what? What the heck's going on? Yeah. Yeah. uh, uh, I wonder what the uh, the eighteenth century expression would have been. We know what it would have been today. Sure, <laughs> so, exactly. So, uh, but uh, these these are perhaps small things mm-hmm. in and of themselves, but they kept happening.
0: Right, and they're some emblematic of a larger yeah, process. of work. Uh
1: and then there was finally the so-called eruption into Canada, <laughs> which was one of the uh, perhaps the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm-hmm. The. Uh, uh, Decision made by the Board of War to to launch another invasion of Canada without checking with Washington by assigning troops. uh, Gates said, "Don't worry, George." Uh, He probably didn't call him George. Uh, (laughs) Don't worry, I will replace any troops you need. Well, where was he going to get them? Yeah, where are you going to get them? This is Valley Forge in February, and the army is barely holding together. Um, He appoints Lafayette, one of Washington's officers, without checking with Washington. Uh, he appoints subordinate officers without checking with Washington, mm-hmm. and this goes back to Washington's uh, belief in, in military subordination yeah. to civilian authority. Uh, Washington, um, again, uh, he's very skeptical of this. Yeah. He's, he, he, he sees it for what it is, and it's another attempt to undercut him. Uh, or at least he believed that, and plenty of other people believed it, including Lafayette. Lafayette had direct orders Mm -hmm. from Gates to proceed immediately to Albany and take command of this new expedition. Mm -hmm. Washington approves Lafayette's ignoring those orders and instead reporting to York mm-hmm. to argue over command arrangements, including insisting that if any invasion takes place, it will be done as an extension of Washington's army, mm-hmm. not as an independent command, because Gates uh, wanted this whole thing run out of the border of yeah. war, not out of the Continental Command. Sure. Uh, and Washington allowed Lafayette to do that, mm-hmm. and you can get around that any way you want, but that was insubordination
0: yeah. On, yeah.
1: on Washington's part and Lafayette's mm-hmm. part. Uh, Washington. Uh, well, Lafayette was probably lucky he was Lafayette because to go down to Congress and say, I'm not going to do this, I'll quit uh, if you don't give me the officers I want. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Henry Lawrence was president of Congress at the time, one of the only members of Congress to say this whole idea of a Canadian invasion is, is just nuts. Dumb, yeah. And he was just tickled pink to watch Lafayette <laughs> driving driving yeah. uh, the gates and the others absolutely crazy. Yeah. They said they did anything they could to bring Lafayette around, but he just wouldn't come around. He wouldn't around. do it. So, uh, but it was this. Uh, there are some very good letters, uh, one by Joseph Reed, who mm-hmm. Joseph Reed was not always a Washington partisan either. Sure. Who finally said uh, at this whole Canadian thing uh, was gathering steam. And look, uh, don't appoint a man mm-hmm. in a position of power and then undertake a series of measures to undercut that power. Yeah. And I, I wish I could memorize his, his phrasing exactly, but he said, either place the power in his hands mm-hmm. or change the hands. Yeah. So it was time to either back Washington mm-hmm. or get rid of Washington. And, and uh, Joseph Reed said, we have to keep Washington. Yeah. We simply have to, there's nobody else. So, uh, but you look at all these things and say, "Well, was there a conspiracy? Mm-hmm. Well, did it have to be a conspiracy?" Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, a if good you question. know, actions always speak louder than words. Maybe, well, then, maybe not always, but I think in these <laughs> cases, actions spoke louder than words. Yeah, yeah. And the actions said that Congress was willing to support the Board of War step by step mm-hmm. as it began to chop away the command authority of the Commander in Chief. Mm-hmm. Until this whole eruption into Canada, when finally everybody said, wait a minute. Yeah. Time out. Wait a minute. Time out. Uh, there was a committee at Congress that was had been sent from York to to Washington mm-hmm. to work with Washington on the Army's problems. Washington mm-hmm. won them around. And and so he had four or five guys from Congress mm-hmm. who were now solidly in his quarter. And they and and, and they were writing back. Um, on the commissary issue, on the quartermaster issue, on mm-hmm. the invasion of Canada issue, and, and to their colleagues in Congress, what are you doing? Yeah. Uh, it was. Uh, and we have to keep in mind something else too. Uh, when we're talking about Congress during this period, mm-hmm. you're talking about a group that, some days, was lucky to get twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three oh, yeah, people in the forum. Yeah. Uh, and so, if you had four or five people consistently with Washington at, at uh, with the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, You're talking about maybe a quarter of Congress, uh, which, uh, uh, but Washington did. I think it's pretty clear he he played off um, this committee at camp, members of Congress, Mm -hmm. uh, against the Board of War. No question about that. And and used them to influence Congress itself. So while he yes he was absolutely adamant in in maintaining uh, the the superiority of, Mm -hmm. of of civilian authority. But he was willing to work with that authority in ways that uh, to get what he wanted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he was. Uh, uh, I think one of the conclusions of the book was not much different from other conclusions of, of Washington as a political general. Sure. We've never seen anybody better. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was really, uh, really that good.
0: Well, I mean, as you say, you know, he was watching the the critics circle. You know, he was watching what was happening at the Board of War, and you know, watching these attempts to undercut his authority, and so he. You know, deploys those you know, skills he's learned as a you know a Burgess in the 1760s, yeah. and you know earlier to start working the rooms and and talking to the right people to achieve his objectives. Well, you're absolutely right,
1: and I think what you've hit on is uh, the difference between a commander in chief mm-hmm. and a mere general. Sure, a
0: yeah.
1: uh, commander in chief had to have those kinds of skills, mm-hmm. uh, not only to maintain his command but to make sure that he could marshal the support mm-hmm. that his army would need uh, to see it through the war, but also to maintain the strategic vision. Yeah, uh, you, you can't have an army wanting to do one thing and the political leadership wanting to do something else. Yeah. Washington was able to, to reconcile these mm-hmm. things. I mean, not easily, sure, but consistently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after this, after Monmouth, when all this was put behind him, uh, he, he pretty much was able to do what he wanted mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. If I'm looking for a modern comparison, I suppose, Dwight Eisenhower comes to mind. Uh, a no, man who no. had to not only fight a war, but he had to reconcile people with all kinds of different viewpoints mm-hmm. on, on how to fight that yeah. war and get them in line. Uh, not just other generals, but political leaders mm-hmm. as well. It, it's... Um, uh, Washington was uh, uh, the consummate American mm-hmm. political general. Yeah, at a time when the revolution needed a consummate political general, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's one of the best things he brought to the mm-hmm. to the revolutionary cause. Sure, it really was. Sure.
0: So. Well, now that you've uh, you've finished plotting against General Washington, um, you have a sense of what's next on the horizon for you. What's the next book? <laughs> well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of them in, in the in the works right now. Yeah, uh, I've
1: been looking at the Northern War, uh, focusing on on uh, Ticonderoga as sort of the locus of what well, almost amounted to a no man's land in, in mm-hmm. the northern front between uh, uh, Canada and, and New York State. Uh, working with two other historians, the, uh, the the project will be a trilogy, three separate books. Oh, cool. So I'll be handling the. Uh, uh, the war in the north from 1777 mm-hmm. uh, through the end of the war. Uh, David Preston will be uh, looking okay. at uh, sure. the same area and then based on, on Ticonderoga in the colonial period uh, James Kirby Martin mm-hmm. will be looking at the early years of the American Revolution. Very good. So. Uh, I'm done it's sitting there waiting for the other guys to catch up and, <laughs> and, uh, but the the publisher's ready to go and, and then uh, but I'm interested now uh, in, in, in the nature of, of violence in the American Revolution we've mm-hmm. had a lot of recent scholarship on what happened mm-hmm. uh, yes uh, it, it was not the immaculate conception type of revolution yeah. that, that happened without clean. the without the violence associated with a lot of other uh, mm-hmm. uh revolutions, but uh, there's been less, uh, a, a good emphasis on the descriptive elements of what happened, mm-hmm. not much on the explanatory of why, why it happened it did, that's what I'm looking at now awesome. and uh, that's, I think will evolve mm-hmm. into an interesting book and I, I think we've got an interesting hook to hang it on and uh, which explains a, a good deal it was a, it was a nasty business indeed, yeah. a very nasty business indeed and then uh, uh, yet another project with Jim Martin. We've worked, we've worked pretty well together over the years and we can't see any reason to stop. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, no one has looked in depth at Benedict Arnold as a British general.
0: Oh, and we've already done a couple of
1: articles mm-hmm. on that. We've looked at him in Virginia. We've looked at his raid into New London. Mm-hmm. But that's only part of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a very active Redcoat officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had plans. He uh, uh, had ambition. Uh, he had capability, you know, mm-hmm. whether a lot of Americans <laughs> like to face up to that yep. or not. But, uh, you know, Arnold has also been the subject of an awful lot of recent scholarship. Mm-hmm. But that... It's pretty much not touched yeah. on, and when people do touch on it, uh, how do I do this delicately? Uh, they pretty much got it wrong, yeah, <laughs> so they pretty much got it wrong. So,
0: and we're hoping that uh, uh this next project yeah. will we'll deal with that. Well, that sounds good. Well, it sounds like you got a full plate, and I know that you've got a, a book talk to get to this evening here at Mount Vernon, so um, we'll I think we'll just we'll stop there and just say thank you very much, and we look forward to your next three projects, and, um, and look forward to seeing this book do well. Well, thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Same. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Mason Shelby was our sound engineer. Our theme music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.